Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Interlibrary Loan. If you're new to our show, it's kind of weird that you would pick this one to start because we're a show that you should listen to serially, but I'm going to give you the pitch anyway. We take a book, we read through it chapter by chapter, section by section, page by page, and we discuss it one chapter, one section at a time, so you can read along with us. We are in the middle of David Mitchell's 2004 novel, Cloud Atlas. This is our fourth episode on Cloud Atlas, and today we're going to be discussing the section entitled The Ghastly Ordeal of Timothy Cavendish. I'm John. The Ghastly Ordeal of Timothy Cavendish. That was Timothy Cavendish. (laughs) I'm not Timothy Cavendish. I am Sky, another host of this here podcast. And I'm Katie. All right. Well, I have suggested both of you to the recap section so i guess it's my turn to quickly recap the events of last week last week's reading was entitled half lives the first louisa ray mystery so in this section we meet louisa ray who is a young journalist eager to fill the boots the footprints the cavernous space left by her towering giant of a father lester ray who was a beat cop who refused to go corrupt uh, after a run-in with some ragamuffins, he lost an eye and became a famous journalist. So she works at a kind of a gossip rag, but she shared an elevator with one Rufus Sixsmith, a nuclear scientist and Nobel laureate who we were first introduced to in Section 2, Letters from Zettelgem. In fact, the eponymous letters were sent to Sixsmith by one Robert Frobisher. So... As it turns out, Sixsmith is trying to uncover a conspiracy, but quickly gets murdered by the corporation he works for. However, not before he gets to tip Louisa off to the mystery. So most of the previous section, really, Louisa is trying to figure out if this nuclear power plant that they're building is safe or not. And in the process, she becomes a target herself. And we last see her plunging off the side of a bridge as Bill Smoke, a mysterious assassin who works for Seaboard Incorporated, has pushed her off of a mile-long bridge into the Pacific Ocean. Dun-dun-dun! Yes. And today, we won't hear about barely any of that. Yes, because this book is structured to hang off of cliffs. We are switching to the ghastly ordeal of Timothy Cavendish. Sky, you want to take it off? Sure. Uh, in the, we did this setup last week where you recapped and I did the previous thing, but I didn't say anything because I didn't want to recap Louisa Ray. Um, <laughs> no, last week, last week Katie recapped. Are you sure? I think Katie recapped. Is that right? First week. No, you. Re- well, whatever we did. I didn't recap. Who cares? Last week. Here's what happened with Timothy Cavendish. Timothy Cavendish is a sixty-something guy who is so insufferable that I thought. Uh, that, uh, man, like, I thought that Frobisher was insufferable, but this guy, ugh, forget about it. Uh, But the the thing about Cavendish, though, and I will say, just right off the bat before we jump in, this was the hardest section for me to really get into, I feel, and I don't really know why, because there were things about it that I liked, but it also just, I don't know what it was about this section that made it difficult for me to get through. One page into this section, oh my gosh, I was like, I was saying to my to my girlfriend, Lauren, who has read Cloud Atlas before, like, this section is terrible and, I, and I, I'm going to hate reading it. And then like five pages in, I was like, oh, this is great, actually. So Yeah, I actually really love it. Totally. It, it's, yeah. But then it would have another section. I'd be thinking to myself, this is horrible. And then it would 
moments later become great again. But well, Timothy Cavendish is, as you say, insufferable, but also oddly likable. Think about this book that we really started to see last week, and we talked about this a lot last week. I think Mitchell is having a lot of fun as a writer because while the book is intricately structured in a way that a lot of like contemporary postmodern literature is, you know, I'm looking at you, like House of Leaves, um, or even before that, I mean, you see this going all the way back to Pale Fire. But what Mitchell does with this is he sets each story in a profoundly different section and then he really digs deep into parodying in some ways that style but also really trying to wear it like honestly and truthfully Mm -hmm. so you know the last section was written in such a way that it was you know these little bite-sized chapters designed to have kind of a cliffhanger at the end of every single one and in fact timothy cavendish because as we've now realized each each section is going to reflect on the previous section so timothy cavendish when reading the first half of half lives mentions that the the chapteroids the clever chapteroids as he put them and i just had a realization in mentioning that name half lives the first louisa ray mystery obviously inspired by the nuclear plot of the story but also now come to think of it the fact that we've been reading half stories yeah the structure thus far of the of the book Mm -hmm. and uh what was that 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 phrase that frobisher said an unfinished book is an unfinished love affair yeah, I commented on the fact that this is literally, when you read it, it's literally an unfinished book, and literally there is an unfinished love affair. It's, yes. Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Timothy Cavendish disapproves of flashbacks, foreshadowings, and tricksy devices which belong in the 1980s with MAs in postmodernism and chaos theory. Yes. Uh, which I thought was a, a very great... Uh, like meta commentary on uh, on Mitchell himself, and the the thing is, like I said, Mitchell is really taking a lot of pleasure in the style parodies. I don't even want to call it parodies, but in in, in adopting these styles, and I think this one he really nailed so well. I mean, at some points it seems a little over exaggerated, but there's such great and also such insufferable witticisms in this. I I, I love it so much. So like the very first paragraph, the last sentences. My state of grace was thanks in part to this check and in part to a 1983 Chablis from the Drusois Vineyard, a magic potion that, devol- that dissolves our myriad tragedies into mere misunderstandings. You know, it's that kind of turn of phrase that somebody who thinks he's more clever than he really is employs ad nauseum. Mm-hmm. That's what I found so great about this section because it's like going back 10 years ago and reading my journal. <laughs> I think this is what Katie and I like... Wh- uh, found when we were reading this is that these first couple of pages are incredibly insufferable and not in Frobisher was insufferable in a delightful way and in the first few pages uh, Cavendish is insufferable in just an insufferable way right he's he's just clearly pretentious yes and but over the course of this section you come to understand him more and more as a person and of course there's kind of a twist a third act twist in this section um, that like really makes it brings it all into focus he no longer is just insufferable for the sake of insufferability but you come to understand who he is as a person and uh and his character is given a lot of depth which is fantastic but i still have not um i still have not summarized the plot so let me do that really quickly (laughs) uh timothy cavendish 
a super insufferable uh, 60-something British dude who I can only describe as the real Mr. Brexit uh, <laughs> has, fa- has decided to tell us his story about being the uh, down-and-out owner of a vanity, vanity press uh, where one of his authors happens to publicly murder a popular critic sending the murderer's book into the bestseller charts and giving uh, fleeting wealth and fame to our narrator, Timothy Cavendish. After about a year of uh, success, three brothers of the imprisoned author come to his house to demand 50,000 pounds, which he does not have all of his earnings from the uh, jailed author's memoir having been taken up by his debts. So he goes to his brother to try to get money, but his brother instead says, all I can do is keep you safe for a while, Here, you know, get a train ticket to go to Hull and go to this hotel, Aurora House. Um, his journey to Aurora House is documented by lots of trains that don't work properly and lots of bad customer service experiences, uh, which are all capped when he goes to the Aurora House uh, and eventually realizes that it is in fact a home for el- the elderly that he is now trapped inside. The I mean, end. effectively imprisoned. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah. It, I, it's this third act twist where you, the reader, and Timothy Cavendish realize that Aurora House is not like a country inn, but in fact a home, like a like one flew over the cuckoo's nest style home for the elderly a prison and might we add uh, a rather abusive one disturbing yeah. well he even abusive. he even talks about one flew over the cuckoo's nest but i no- i noted like that he talks about seeing the film which as someone who is a publisher and is constantly bragging and making literary allusions it's funny that he has never read one flew over the cuckoo's nest he has only seen the film well ken um, kesey the author of one flew over the cuckoo's nest famously hates the film Oh yeah, I don't. I have not seen the film or or read the book, but I know what it's about. <laughs> um, you forgot one point I want to touch upon, though. In one of his unscheduled detours on his horrendous train journey, he ends up in a village that he spent a lot of time as as a youth in. And in fact, he has all these memories of his childhood that he had forgotten. And we're kind of introduced to his, you know, like young teenage girlfriend Ursula. Mm-hmm. And in fact, he goes to her old house and she's there like as a grandmother now. And he's reminiscing about what his life would have been had he not taken, you know, all of the turns that he did. Yeah. Was that real? I was not sure if that was supposed to be real. Well, I mean, this book, this section of the book is written as a memoir. So we're supposed to take it as real. But then again, also with all of the caveats that reading a memoir I mean, in some senses, I feel like Timothy Cavendish is the most unreliable narrator we've had so far. It is really unclear at the end of this section what, if any of this, is real. Actually happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and like, and it, it even resists, like, there's no usual suspects moment 
where we see the like bottom of the coffee cup and can piece together all of the things that Cavendish has been lying to us about. Maybe that'll come in the second half. But like in this first ha- part of the Timothy Cavendish story, like there's no counter narrative to what Timothy Cavendish that is telling us that like totally makes sense. But it's also like I very much doubt Timothy Cavendish's reliability as a narrator. Well, I mean, there's one point, and it's when he's trying to gather the fifty thousand quid. He he says he called up Sotheby's to offer them Charles Dickens's own original authentic writing desk for auction with the reserve price of sixty thousand, and then they pretty quickly shoot him down. And he says, "I do lose track of my little elaborations." That was like a lie he was telling to the to Sotheby's. That like that was like he was saving face because they were Sotheby's was like, um, yeah, like. Dickens' writing desk already existed in this museum, so we're not, yeah. Um, but, but but what I mean by but, that, though, is the line where he says, I do lose track of my little elaborations, leads me to believe that he's the kind of person who starts to believe his own lies. Oh, interesting. Okay. Also, Cavendish in that line itself tells us that he can't always be considered a, a reliable narrator. Exactly. Um. But what we do know by this point is after the book has become the book, meaning knuckle sandwich, the kind of pulpy thriller uh, after that's become successful because he's, he's a vanity publisher. Basically people pay him. So their books will be published. And then, you know, his author, who's like a gangster murders someone, as you said, then the book becomes super popular, but he owns the sole rights. So then he's trying to like talk up his, reputation as a real publisher rather than just as a vanity publisher and he actually starts to get submissions from people who don't want to pay him for their book to be published but rather expect to become legitimate authors and one of these submissions that he gets is half lives the first louisa ray mystery and so what we discover from him is that the author he says it's lady author is dubiously named hillary v hush which sounds a lot like a pen name to me it does and it also, of course, we're told now that Half-Lives is a manuscript. So immediately it should put the reader to the question, what, what, if, what is all of this that we've read so far? Exactly. Because if you remember last week, I started off talking about Half-Lives by saying it's entitled The First Louisa Ray Mystery, mm-hmm. which heavily implies that it's part of a series and therefore probably fiction. We also had the discussion last week that chronologically Frobisher could be a reincarnated Adam Ewing because Ewing likely would have died before Frobisher was born. Likewise, Frobisher very possibly could have died before Louisa was born. However, Half-Lives took place in the 1970s, 1975. This section, the ghastly ordeal of Timothy Cavendish, is implied to take place at the current day. Now, that would have been, you know, 2004 when the book first came out. There's a lot that could still take place, you know, a kind of contemporary. Whoa, this society. book was originally published in 2004? I believe so. Yes. Wow. It, this section in particular feels extremely contemporary for, having, right? for it being published a dozen years ago. It really does. Like, it has not aged at all. When I, when I describe Timothy Cavendish as Mr. Brexit, like, th- like... <laughs> Yeah, dude. Wow. Okay, 2004, huh? Yeah, and this is interesting. Actually, I just flipped to the um, the 
copyright page of my book to confirm that. It is indeed 2004. But you know how they also put those little like categories and themes on that page? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mine says, one, fate and fatalism fiction. And two, reincarnation fiction. So the self-ascribed themes of this book per the copyright page are fatalism and reincarnation. But getting back to what Katie was saying, this kind of completes the implication from last week that Louisa Ray is a fictional character. Mm-hmm. Which... Yes, which would also make Frobisher and Adam Ewing fictional characters in this universe. Maybe In not? the universe of Cavendish. Yeah, but could be or could not be. That's the question. Because... Well, so we I want to talk about... Oh, go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say, we don't know the identi- identity of whoever this Hillary V. Hush is. So she could likely be a real person who had incorporated people she actually knew. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been. I was thinking about this today, actually, before I read this section. But like, you know, there's uh, with each sort of nested narrative that we get, we get further and further away from an understanding of like what the real narrative is. Um, Especially, like, this jump between the Louisa Ray mystery, which is, like, obviously written as a work of fiction, and this one in which it sort of, like, implies that the entire section of the book that we've read up till now is itself a work of fiction or some sort of weird other thing. And at a certain point, I just wonder if, like, at the end of the book, it'll just be David Mitchell going, ha ha, the real fiction is all of this. There is no true narrative. Everything's just stuff that I, David Mitchell, have written. But whether or not that's how the book ends, that is in fact what is happening, as all of these things are just stories that David Mitchell is telling us as the author. I don't really have a point to that. I just like, I'm just, I, well, like reading this book, I'm continually <laughs> going like, what is the real narrative and then i keep having to remind myself like this is all the real narrative because like it's a work of fiction so what but you my see question, is what you get okay but like anna karenina what is the real narrative is it anna's narrative is it Stella's jonathan narrative? i have not read anna karenina what is wrong with you maybe we should read anna karenina on this podcast there we go no question to- answer totally totally vetoing that out of hand katie have you read anna karenina i sure have Oh, and okay. is it not wow. an amazing work of fiction? It is. But we digress. <laughs> Wait, no, 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 no. I want to talk about Anna Karenina. Is it good? Should we read it on this podcast next? I thought it would be too long. Anna Karenina is one of my favorite books. but It's it's pretty great. I don't think it's too long. It's It's got about 200 pages in the middle that are just about like farming that you could do without. I like farming. All right. Well, well there going. we go. But this is not the yeah, maybe maybe, show. maybe I'll take over the farming section and I'll talk about the history of agriculture, which is one of my favorite topics. So anyway, back to the back to the train ride that Cavendish is on. We were talking about Ursula. Yeah. Oh, so, yeah. Ursula. So back to the train ride that Cavendish was on um, when he starts to when the train starts to slow down. And like this is the part where he gets to this side journey where he, you know, sees Ursula's house but doesn't like go back and introduce himself again or anything like that although he does have a run-in with her grandson as they're slowing down and he's kind of remembering that he's spent his childhood here he says one thing very specifically Uh, he's looking out the window and he says my thoughts flew off with other fairies and we were past Saffron Walden 
when the train juddered to a halt. Oh, damn. Do you remember Saffron Walden? I'm certain that I'm supposed to, but I don't. This is on page 161, Katie. 161. Uh, Saffron Walden is the hometown of our friend Robert Frobisher. Yep. <gasps> That's right! I actually missed that in the Cavendish section. Um, what page is it again? 161. Oh, okay. Aha, there we go. Cool. Well, and if you remember back in Louisa Ray, as she's reading the letters from Zettelgum, she feels this memory, this history of Frobisher. She feels his memories and it makes her uncomfortable. And now we have this just, it's not direct the way that it was with her, but we have this invocation of his hometown. And this is what begins the passage where he remembers his own childhood. And if there you know, is some kind of reincarnation between all of the characters, like it makes sense that 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 Cavendish is pretty insufferable because forever sure it was pretty insufferable. And then on the next page, well, on so the Saffron Walden was on page 161. So two pages over page 163. This is when he starts to talk about remembering Ursula and really diving into his his youth and he says that ursula drove me a few hundred yards to dockery house commissioned in art nouveau times by a scandawegian consul we had the place to ourselves while mater and pater were in greece holidaying with lawrence durrell if memory serves he specifically refers to his father using latin which frobisher did mm-hmm. i mean i feel like Using Latin casually is the last refuge of an insufferable person. I know, but in the, there's... In, at least in the 20th century. All um, I'm saying is that there are very, some very specific stylistic links, and in, some ca- in this case, also geographic ones, between these two characters. There, Yeah, there are connections with them, and... and, and at the same moment when we can make make these connections with Saffron Walden and with Mater and Potter, there is there's mention of memory or thought. So I, I I do agree with you, John, that I don't think it's without importance. I th- I, I feel like it's intentional. And you know what? I'm signing in on this too. Sign me up because we've also got some ancient queens all up in this section. <laughs> we do. We have some Nefertiti. Yes. And we Nefertiti. have Nefertiti, and we have Cleopatra, and we have uh, all sorts of other things out of Gibbon and and etc. Well, hell, I mean, Cavendish says he's reading Gibbon. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. For the, re- the for the listener who's not familiar, the rise and no, the the decline and fall is the title. The decline and fall of the decline Roman Empire. Decline and fall of the Roman Empire is a, is a six Edward volume Gibbon. history of the Roman Empire by Edward Gibbon, which is in contemporary context considered to be wholly inaccurate but is still kind of the foundational text for the contemporary practice of like roman classical studies uh yeah and sort of like history writing generally um it was published in 1776 so that's how old it is and people still read it i know i have Yes. So then as he's kind of creeping around Ursula's house, 
trying to figure out what's going on and his cover is and he's discovered by her grandson we discover that there's a halloween party going on and the grandson asks are you one of grandmommy's friends and he says yes and the grandson says what's your costume and cavendish says i've come as the ghost of christmas past so are you you trying to bait me no that's a pretty clever and witty response from cavendish but also not only is this section talking directly about memory it is invoking the idea of like past ghosts and i mean if you want to talk about a christmas carol sky i know you love i know you love it but all i'm saying here is like it's a, these are some very specific choices and and it, it's a little aggressive and heavy but i'm also making our discussion be aggressive and heavy because you know as you're reading the book for the first time if you're not focusing on these things then it's a little more subtle yeah it's a very Christmas carol-y scene, actually. Like, there's this idea that, like, there's, it's it's almost like, it's more like the ghost of Christmas uh, present than the ghost of Christmas past, because, you know, he's, like, looking in at uh, at this family, and, uh, you know, in the same manner that, that the ghost of Christmas past and the ghost of Christmas present take Scrooge and have him sort of, like, look in through the window at these domestic scenes. Um so, I don't know, maybe that's what Cavendish is thinking about when he compares himself to the ghost of uh, Christmas past. Um, yep, that's all I have to say about the Christmas Carol, other than I love a Christmas Carol very much. Yeah. <laughs> well, so then afterwards he checks into a kind of a crappy motel and starts to masturbate. <laughs> well, tries to, but he says, I, I love this. Attempts. And I'm... I'm only invoking this because of the language. I loved it so much because he referred to it his was pretty junk great. as Prince Rupert and the boys. Yeah, uh, that's that's the oddest of names that I think I've ever heard. Guys, we should form a new wave band and call it Rupert and the Boys. Who but, else would be privy to the to the to the second meaning? Well, the thing is, directly before this line though is something. Because he says he's trying to masturbate based on his memories, but of 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 all of his, the bedroom of all of his lovers. But he he then says, looking down the murky, sorry, mucky telescope of time. So this is just another image that's repeating throughout and throughout and throughout all of these sections. The idea of a telescope, because remember I pointed it out. Ewing talks about a telescope. What is a telescope mm-hmm. to the pygmies? I don't remember if Frobisher talks about a telescope, but he probably does at one point. Sixsmith's niece, Megan, is a radio astronomer. And now he's, here's, here's a reference to the mucky telescope of time. Now, I'm not trying to like talk about this or make this a big discussion point. I'm just saying like these things keep reappearing. Right. So they're clearly important. Or they will be. I mean, we're working towards something. Yes. Or maybe not. Maybe he's just like peppering consistent imagery throughout these disparate stories, man. I don't know, but I, you know, it. I, we are definitely seeing like similar images and language repeated over and over again in in like, you know, now that we're four four stories deep, like we know that these are not coincidences or carelessness. They are like very real and intentional repetitions. Exactly, and you remember what I said last time about like the idea of the individual versus the institution and how I saw it manifesting itself in Louisa Ray's story as 
her versus the corporation, but then there were also a couple of mentions of strikes where institutions were kind of disprivileging her without directly trying to oppose her. Mm -hmm. I mean, the same thing is happening here because Cavendish has these just nightmarish train journeys. And on page 168, you know, he says he's trying to like exchange his ticket, but he can't exchange his ticket. And he tries to complain, but the ticket agent is like, oh, we're ticket lords, but the train is run by Southnet. But Southnet Loco is owned by a holding company in Dusseldorf, but they're owned by someone in Helsinki. So this, I mean, I think we've all kind of been as modern consumers in a situation kind of like this, if not this comical and absurd where, you know, you're dealing with a vendor who isn't actually the person you need to talk to. And it's impossible to try and get a hold of, you know, the final person who's responsible for, you know, helping you out. It's, I mean, it's dealing with nightmare bureaucracy, right? Like this is just one way of doing that. Yeah. It, it's unclear in this section, whether the, sur- like you, you mentioned that it was surreal and like, it's unclear whether that surrealness of uh, the sort of, like Kafka-esque nightmare that Cavendish finds himself in. It's unclear if that's like Cavendish who is aware of these kinds of absurdities in everyday life, like embellishing them and like inventing them as he like loses it, or if they're supposed to be like real but embellishes like embellishments of the author of David Mitchell, or if it's like this is an alternate universe in which like things are slightly weirder than they are in real life. Um, well, I mean, I one of the determine which one of those things was true. I thought I at, at at different points throughout this section, I considered each of those possibilities as true. Yeah, uh, one of the realities of like a post Thatcher Britain is the privatization of the rails, though. So, to a certain extent, the dispopularity of private rail companies is very common in you know like the, the well, but this is what i mean right so like cavendish holds all of these like views and uh and like ideas that are like real and like people in modern britain have them but they in this section they're like routinely taken to these like very slightly over the top surreal places that are like just a little bit more than what we might actually expect in like a naturalistic portrayal of like modern society in britain and I and so yeah, it's it's not clear whether it's just like he believes these things, which are like things that real people believe, but like ex- embellishes them in his mind um, or on paper as he's writing his memoir, or if it's like part of the world that of the, yeah. of the novel. But then yeah. on the on the next page over on one sixty nine, he sees a woman on the train reading a movable feast. And I noted the movable feast as well. That's a Hemingway memoir. And then at the bottom of this page, <laughs> he's kind of judging people. And he says, the memoirs are bad enough, but all that ruddy fiction, hero goes on a journey, stranger comes to town, somebody wants something, they get it or they don't. Will is pitted against Will. Admire me, for I am a metaphor. This book is so freaking... <laughs> Are we already on, uh, like, quotes of the week? No, it's just, it's just this book is so metatextual. I kind of love it. I know it's a little insufferable, but... But yeah, no, that's... But, and then, oh, but right after that, we need to talk about this. A Rastafari yes. has him get high on some unknown substance. Yeah, and this is another one of the moments in which we we must hate Cavendish. We really must. 
because he's super well, racist. He's super racist. Here, here's what I wanted to say, because the way he says it is, I'm not a racialist, mm-hmm. but I do believe the, yeah. the ingredients in so-called melting pots take generations to melt. Yeah, I feel like the, the character that he most resembles that we've seen before in the narrative is... Um, uh, oh, what's what's that dude's name? One of the people from Ewing's. Doctor Goose. Doctor Goose. Doctor yeah. Henry Goose. Yeah. And, yeah. Who is also a notably a Brit, um, but like, we definitely see in Cavendish this like, like super. He's super racist, but he's like trying to justify and explain away his racism. And, and what I found so interesting about this line is every single story so far has had elements of racism within them mm-hmm. from the main character or in the case of last week to the main character but i think that this line kind of describes the depiction of racism that we're experiencing more than anything else melting pots take generations to melt like we're coming forward in time and we're experiencing a culture that is slowly becoming more integrated we are seeing the generations for it, you know, it having to melt. We are also seeing the racism become less explicit and more trying to justify itself out of, you know, I don't know, this like smugness rather than this universally accepted superiority. Yeah, man, Mr. Brexit. I mean, at one point he does publicly call a ticket like clerk Nina Simone yeah. in front of like a bunch of people. Which is extremely uncomfortable. <laughs> the best, I was the best like, part about that so uncomfortable is because he he cuts in line in front of a punk and he gets called out by the punk for being rude and then called out by the punk for being racist. Yeah, it's interesting. He calls the punk a skinhead and like, you know, he he repeatedly makes reference to like Nazi skinheads. But it's yeah, but it's weird because this like punk who he calls a skinhead is like calling him out in front of like train station security for being racist yeah so then once he gets to hull he takes a cab cab is driven by a sikh gentleman who cavendish is racist against but he also notes a howling singer on the radio strummed a song about how everything that dies someday comes back yeah and then this is where we get to this he has a quip about that but i think that's also should just be a jab at the reader like hey, if you haven't picked up on this yet, <laughs> yeah, there's a theme that's carrying here. And this is where he then gets to his final destination and the big twist happens and we realize, oh yeah, he hasn't been sent to a hotel. He's been sent to kind of a forced nursing home in which he's not allowed to leave. And in fact, he's locked in and this turned into... One flew over the cuckoo's nest, kind of, because there's like the super abusive nurse, and he keeps talking off to people and getting slapped and hit and stuff. And what I found interesting about this section, this is where it takes a big turn in the narrative, because I didn't really find anything in this section that was layered into what we had previously experienced so far. Uh, that's a that's an interesting. Um, it, it is definitely the first time we've had a third act twist within one of the stories. Mm-hmm. Because, Scott, you were asking, what is the overarching narrative to this story? Well, what mm-hmm. what is the universal so far? Every character that we've experienced has been isolated or cut off in some way. 
So Ewing is cut off because he's on this journey and he's isolated. He's, he's just happy at the beginning of the, you know, the first page. He's happy to meet someone who speaks English. And then Frobisher is cut off from his family. And then he's cut off from the UK because he has no money. And, you know, he's, he's on this flight from everything. And Louisa is cut off very, very intentionally and very directly. She, you know, she starts to be cut off by Seaboard Incorporated. They're trying to, you know, I mean, they, they force her off a bridge, but, you know, other than that, like they break into her apartment, they bug her phone, stuff like that. And her father was cut off from the police force. You know, there's, there's that. And now we have Cavendish who gets cut out of his life. You know, he's forced to flee. And the third act twist then is he thinks he's fleeing to safety, but in fact, he becomes incarcerated more or less. So like, that's something we haven't gotten to yet is this kind of forced helplessness. Hmm. Interesting. Is the silence because that was a dumb comment or because you hadn't thought of that yet? Uh, no, I hadn't actually thought of it. Yeah, I don't really have much more to... Uh, this This last section is really puzzling and kind of feels incongruous with the rest of the... Um, like, with the rest of the work so far. That's definitely the case. I did, like, when Cavendish, like, first notices the nurse, like, going through his belongings and, like, the first night he's there, I love that his first thought was, was this some sort of a kinky S&M hotel? Well, that happens after she slaps (laughs) I thought that was great. Yes. That's one of my quotes that I underlined. I'm going to have about 15 or 16 favorite quotes this week. There are a lot of good quips. Like, this is a novel full of good quips, and this section had more quips than any of them. Yes. It's true, and it's because of the the nature of Cavendish, where he is this insufferable uh, person, but also with quite the quick wit. I don't know how quick Cavendish's wit is, because there is one time where, when the, when the, um, because he's writing this as a memoir after the fact, so it seems like he is good at writing stuff beforehand. But I love that when the when the three brothers of uh, of his author, Dermot, uh, come and confront him, he's, like, on the toilet, and uh, they say, like, Timothy pronounced the gargoyleist Cavendish, I presume, caught with your cacks down. Yeah. And this goes, My business hours are 11 to 2, gentlemen, Bogart would have said. With a three-hour break for lunch. <laughs> Kindly leave. But all I could do was blurt, Oi, my door! My ruddy door! So, like, it seems like he's got a lot of these, like, witticisms after the fact. But in the moment, uh, not, as, not as much. Yeah. Yeah. All right, we want, do you want to get started on those uh, 15 quotes of the week you've got? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Um... Let me just get back to the beginning because I really do. Okay, so the re- first one I already read, which was the, the bit about the wine. There's another one. Once he gets incredibly drunk, he says, Time's arrow became Time's boomerang. I like that one a lot. And then when he's trying to cheer Dermot up before Dermot flings the, the, the critic off of the balcony, he says, Come now, what's a reviewer? One who reads quickly, arrogantly, but never wisely. I liked that one a lot. That's that's the kind of um, 
circular logic that you employ when you get really annoyed at someone, you know? You said the one Sakai about postmodernism and chaos theory. Another one I wanted to mention. Yeah, that one... Uh, that one's great because it is like David Mitchell taking a like jab at himself. Like I don't think he seriously thinks this about like David Mitchell is clearly having fun envisioning what a crotchety old dude would say about his own writing. Oh, surely. So I had another favorite simile and it was back when he was skulking around Ursula's and uh, he said... You would think a place the size of England could easily hold all the happenings in one humble lifetime without much overlap. I mean, it's not ready Luxembourg we live in, but no, we cross, crisscross, and recross our old tracks like figure skaters. Hey, it's almost like there's a theme. It's almost like there is. And, well, so another line that I really liked. He says, when he's telling a secretary why he's going to be gone, and he says... I, I explained to Mrs. Latham that I would be in Prague for a three-week meeting with Vaclav Havel. A lie whose consequences stuck with me like herpes. So wait, I guess this is foreshadowing for the second part, because if the consequences... Exactly. Like, the consequences are, I guess, that, like, Mrs. Latham is not going to suspect anything for at least three weeks. Uh, but, but but when she does, he, she will, I guess, think that he is in... Prague. Well, that's the thing. He he notes that there's really not anybody who's going to miss him, <laughs> though he is kind of imprisoned in this in this old folks' home. Yeah, well, I also just loved the line "consequences stuck with me like herpes." <laughs> that's pretty great. And another bit, he's talking about commuter rail, and he says these hapless souls who enter a lottery of death twice daily. <laughs> as someone who takes the subway during rush hour both times that really resonated with me um my favorite my, I, I really like this part where he's explaining his newfound success uh after his author murders a critic um if he, so he has he runs a vanity press which like doesn't actually profit from selling copies of books to the public so he says Nothing in my four decades in the publishing game had geared us for such success. Running costs had always been recouped from author donations, not from actual ruddy sales. It seemed almost unethical, which I think is great. Like, the unethical thing is running a vanity press, and now when he's faced with the prospect <laughs> of legitimate business, he, like, doesn't know how to react to it. <laughs> yes. Okay. Last quip, I promise. When he gets off the train at Hull and he's disoriented because he's stoned, uh, he, he's looking for a clock and he's, he finds two. And then he says, but clocks in disagreement are worse than no clock at all. Isn't that the That's truth? Kind of, yeah, I really, uh, there, there's some things that Cavendish says that I like because they're so ridiculous and kind of, they make me a little annoyed and mad, but there's some things I like because it's actually just kind of a, a nice little earnest witticism also if you really want me to try hard to sell a connection do you remember what the name of the assassin from last chapter was or last section was bill smoke and what is the name what is the name of the kinky s&m nurse from this section 
No, Noakes. Uh, Smoke, Noak. Oh my God, they rhyme. What if they're this now? <laughs> That's horrible. Um, I, I underlined that and I was like, I'm going to drive this home just because it's I awful. mean, I don't actually believe I'm not going to rule it out yet. Why not? <laughs> I, I'm going to say okay. it now. I don't think you have a leg to stand on, John. This book, <laughs> and by this book, I mean uh, Cloud Atlas, is full of some bullshit names. Like Bill Smoke, there's a reason why his name is bullshit. He's in a detective novel. But, like, there is a man yeah. who is named in this book, and his name is straight up Gordon Warlock Williams. That's not it. What, what is yes. that? What is that? I don't even know what I should think well, of that. Even more so, so though, that, that character and, and his cohort, which are kind of the, the, like, the resistance against the oppressive uh, old folks home people... Yes. They're so great. They're so her great. Name is Gwen- her, she says, my name is Gwendolyn Bendinks. Bendinks, yeah. Which, that's a pretty ridiculous Cavendish, name, too. Cavendish says, don't blame me. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, one thing we did kind of a lead over is just before this section ends. And this section doesn't really end with as much of a cliffhanger. It sounds like he's getting... Basically, it ends with him getting knocked out by Nurse Noakes. But that's not unusual. Uh, but what happens before this is that Miss Bindinks and Mr. Warlock Williams come to him and basically, you know, approach him, say they are the residence committee, but this is the equivalent of a resistance. Yeah. This is, he even compares himself at one point to Steve McQueen in The Great Escape. Yeah. yeah just uh, throwing that baseball against a wall again and again. Like this is, this, <laughs> this is what's going to go down. Yeah. So, I don't know. We have two sections left before things start to turn around and curl back over and wrap themselves up. And will we make sense of it? Almost certainly not. I don't know that anyone's made sense of this. <laughs> anyway, uh, any any favorite moments or things to recommend from outside of this? Uh, outside of this week's reading? I do. uh I this week I saw the film Arrival starring Amy Adams and uh Jeremy Renner and it was it was fantastic. It's uh I I definitely want to see it again. It's one of it's probably one of my favorite sci-fi fix fix flicks, favorite sci-fi <laughs> flicks uh as as of late and um it's it's layered and nuanced and intriguing and um also focuses on something that i hold very dear to and that is the importance of linguistics and social sciences it like linguistics and social sciences essentially save the day which is pretty great i highly recommend it here's a spoiler for the audience Katie is the daughter of two anthropologists. (laughs) Also, Katie and I did not meet in this class. We'd known each other for several years already. But the first time we actually took a class together was a linguistics class. That's true. Language and performative culture. Mm -hmm. I loved that class. It was great. Uh, So for me, and maybe I'm stealing your thunder sky, so if I am, I apologize, but... Last Friday, me and Sky got together at the Brooklyn Academy of Music, which is doing a 
series right now where they will show one classic Golden Age movie musical a week. And so we saw Singing in the Rain on the big screen. Uh, one of my favorite movies of all time. Sky had never seen it before. But, you know, it's, it's, it's great to get to revisit an old movie that you really love in theaters as compared to just like watching it again at home because when you're at home there's so many distractions and things that can really pull your attention away from what you're doing you know what you're watching and it it's just so great to revisit a movie that you know really well in a situation where you're not going to have any of those distractions at all 100% of your focus is going to be in the movie I just I enjoyed it so much so not that you'll get the opportunity to go see it because it was a limited engagement but audience go out you know, rent Singing in the Rain if you don't have it, especially if you haven't watched it and watch it because it's just such a fun, sweet movie. I really, I had not seen Singing in the Rain before and I really enjoyed it. Um, it was great seeing it, you know, it, uh, dear listeners, wherever you live, uh, whether it's a, a town or a city or a cabin in the middle of the woods, um, once oh, in a while, try to get out to your local art theater Um like in in New York City, we have we have many of them. We have BAM and we have the IFC and and many others. But it's so much better. Film Forum, it is Angelica. So much better seeing a movie at a place. But like even if you live in like a like a place where maybe there's like a college town near you where that that has like an art theater or like a, a you know a theater that plays old movies, the audience at these showings is so much better than the audience at your Megaplex. We watched Singing in the Rain with a sold-out audience that applauded loudly and cheered after all of the major dance numbers. <laughs> and it was fantastic just to be in that room with all these people who were so happy to see this old movie. Um, well, I had a wonderful time seeing Singing in the Rain with you, Jonathan. Uh, thank you very much for inviting me. Because that is like not something I would probably have, have gone to see... Uh, on my own. Um, well, let's see. Other than that, I haven't done much of interest this week. Um, but guess what, guys? Uh, we've had a, a long, nice Indian summer. We've had uh, a lot of great uh, late summer weather, a lot of great fall weather, and some fall rain and whatever. But this week, and to a lesser extent last week, now we've got winter weather. Winter weather is coming, guys. And winter weather means drinking stouts. Um, I I subscribe love, to that. I love <laughs> I like how you pulled a stein stouts. out of nowhere. Yeah, to, to all of you <laughs> listeners, I just pulled a beer stein, an empty beer stein that used to have a stout in it uh, up to the camera. But, uh, yeah, uh, you know, put away your toasted lagers. Put away... Your summer beers, your lawnmower beers, break out those stouts, guys. There's all sorts. There's the Irish dry stouts. There's your newfangled coffee and chocolate stouts with all sorts of stuff added to them. There's your There's imperial your oat stouts. stouts. Oh, oat stouts. Love me some oat stouts. Can't get enough of these oat stouts. Now there's like uh, there's like smoked stouts and all sorts of stuff. I can't tell you how much I love stouts so glad that stout weather is back that's that's my thing for this week love the enthusiasm since this is relevant and we have not yet resurrected a time-honored and beloved talking tolkien tradition which is john singing (laughs) 
Oh, do I oh, have no. something special for you? Because with one of my coworkers the other day, we started rewriting Disney songs. And uh, here's one for a hypothetical Disney brewery tour. I can serve you a beer. <laughs> And you pint after pint's glass. This IPA tastes like ass on this brewery <laughs> adventure. Wait, you didn't even get through the first, like, three lines? <laughs> Mostly I just want to say IPA tastes like ass. Because I like IPAs, true. but you know what? Wintertime is not IPA time. All you IPA drinkers, put down them glasses, pick up a stout. Stout time. <laughs> I wish I had like an awesome literary recommendation for y'all today, but uh, but this this week uh, I have not done a lot of reading other than reading for this podcast. I'm sorry. Because you better well should be. I know. Thanks, everyone. As always, you can join us next week where we'll be discussing the next section of Cloud Atlas. So this one is entitled An Horizon of Sanmi 451. Now, without giving anything away, what do you two think that that could be? I have no clue whatsoever, but I do know that the title of this section is vastly different from any of the other titles of any of the other sections that we have read. Good yeah. job, Katie. I think it's an old Cockney man talking about an horizon is Somni 451, right? It's just the horizon. Like what's at the uh, at the meeting between land and sky. I, w- I, w- I will say, give this, give this section an extra half hour to read. It's a little longer. It's a little more dense than what we've read previously. And if you really like David Mitchell delving into genre... This is going to be quite the treat. So join us next week, like I said. And thank you, everyone, for listening. I'm John. I'm Katie. I'm Sky. We'll see you soon. Thank you for listening to Interlibrary Loan. You can find us online at illbook.club, and you can send us an email to hello at illbook.club. We do our best to respond to each email, so please let us know about your thoughts, and feel free to recommend any books you'd like us to discuss in the show. We are Interlibrary Loan on Facebook and at ILL Bookcast on Twitter. And we love hearing from you. If you're not already a subscriber, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. We would particularly appreciate it if you would give us a rating in iTunes. It really helps us to show up in searches and reach a new audience. We also have a Patreon page where you can donate as little as $1 a month to help us grow our podcast. Through your generous support, we've been able to purchase many new pieces of equipment, helping us bring you a better sounding, more professional podcast. Nothing makes us more excited than a new pledge, and we greatly appreciate all the support we've received so far. 